dawned on me that I hadn't really come up with anything humorous or quippy or immature to share with you before I started, so you're welcome. There's a PowerPoint, but it'll probably. Thanks, man. All right. Um, today I'll be reviewing the doctrine of soteriology. By no means will this be comprehensive, but it will be fairly systematic in nature when, while taking a few bunny trails along the way. Um, soteriology, as you probably know, is the study of salvation, derived from the Greek word soterion, which means salvation, and is also related to the Greek word soter, which means savior. Soteriology isn't necessarily a uniquely Christian concept, but we're going to be looking specifically at Christian soteriology today. So when I use the word soteriology, which I realize is really only just like once after this, um, <laughs> assume that I'm talking about Christian soteriology. Um, so again, soteriology merely means the study of sal salvation in any specific religion, but today we're going to look specifically at Christian soteriology. And we'll start by answering questions like, what do we need to be saved from? Or, Sorry, that's supposed to help me slow down. Um, answering questions like, what do we need to be saved from? Who can offer salvation? And how is salvation accomplished? We'll answer these three questions as we get started. First, what do we need to be saved th from? Though we need to be saved from lots of things, like our enemies, as we read in Exodus 14, or difficult circumstances, like we read in Psalm 78, from a soteriological sense, this, the thing that salvation saves us from is our sin, which separates us from God. As you know, due to the fall, we are born without hope on our own and unable to save ourselves from sin. Reading from Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And in Romans 3.23, pretty familiar verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, another familiar verse from Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we find this concept evident in the minds of the Old Testament, um, in those in the Old Testament, as we read in Psalms 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So here we see that all have sinned and are guilty, and further we see that the wages or penalty for that sin is death. So what are we saved from? Sin and spiritual death, which separates us from God. Next, who can offer salvation? Essentially, the offended party, God. Um, John 16 through, or 3, 16 through 17 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send a Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And Peter, before the Sanhedrin, in Acts 4.12 states, in reference to Christ, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Lastly, we need to answer how, how this is accomplished. We all know the answer to this question. Christ went to the cross, purchased the salvation of all who will believe with his atoning death. Now, how is Christ's death sufficient? This is where we see one of the reasons why understanding Christ to be both fully human and fully divine to be a center circle issue. It makes sense that Christ must be deity, for that is the only way he could bear the weight of the Father's anger and actually die for the sins of all. 
Christ's divinity here is essential, but Christ's humanity is equally important in that he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which he has sinned should pay for sin. Should pay for sin. And he must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Hebrews 2.14 reads, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Jesus did not only share in our nature, but also had to identify with us in the experiences of the fall. Again from Hebrews 2, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But it was essential that Christ himself did not sin in this identification with us, otherwise how could he pay for sin? The late Systematic theologian Louis Burkhoff wrote, Only such a truly human mediator who had experimental knowledge of the woes of mankind and rose superior to all temptations could enter sympathetically into all the experiences, the trials, and the temptations of man. The next question to be asked is, exact, is, is how exactly does Christ's death atone for us? Historically, this answer, um, the answer as to how Christ's work on the cross atones for us has come been argued via a litany of different theories. First, the ransom theory. Um, um, the ransom theory of the atonement is one of the first major theories. It finds its roots in the early church, particularly with origin from the third century. This theory essentially teaches that Jesus died as a ransom sacrifice paid either to Satan or to God the Father. Jesus' death then acts as a payment to satisfy the debt on the souls of the human race, the debt we inherited from Adam. Another one of the earliest theories for the atonement is called the moral influence theory. Developed by Peter Abel, Abel, Abelard in the 1100s, this simply taught that Jesus came and died in order to bring about positive change in humanity. Christ's death is seen more as a ramification of his moral life. In this view, the purpose and result of Christ's death was to influence mankind towards moral improvement. This theory denies that Christ died to satisfy any principle of divine justice, but teaches instead that his death was designed to impress mankind with a sense of God's love, resulting in softening their hearts and leading them to repentance. Thus, the atonement is not directed towards God with the purpose of maintaining his justice, but towards man with the purpose of persuading him to right action. Another view of the atonement that was prominent for much of the early church is referred to as Christus Victor. This was the dominant view up until the 12th century. In this view, folks like Irenaeus and Athanasius saw Jesus' act of dying on the cross as a triumphant victor who redeems us from slavery, ransoms us from evil, revives, restores, and reconciles us. By defeating the evil powers that oppose God, Jesus rescued his people from Satan and established himself as the rightful king. This, is, this view of the atonement is what's depicted in Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan sacrifices himself to rescue the, um, the traitor Edmund. Fourth, in the 12th century, Anselm of Canterbury proposed the satisfaction theory for the atonement. In this theory, Christ's death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God. Satisfaction here means restitution, the mending 
of what was broken and the paying back of a debt. In this theory, Anselm emphasizes the justice of God and claims that sin is an injustice that must be balanced. Anselm's satisfaction theory says essentially that Christ died in order to pay back the injustice of human sin and to satisfy the justice of God. And finally, um, we have the penal substitution theory developed out of the Reformation. This is essentially a modification of Anselm's satisfaction theory, most notably influenced by Calvin and Luther. They added a more legal framework into the notion of the cross as satisfaction and that Jesus dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Jesus is punished in the place of sinners in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. In light of Christ's death, God can now forgive the sinner because Jesus has been punished in place of the sinner. Contrasting this with Anselm's theory, the reformers felt that God is not satisfied with a debt just being paid, but that God is satisfied with punishing Jesus in the place of mankind. This is likely the theory that most Christians in modern times would identify with most. Now, most of the theories mentioned have some merit, but simultaneously are incomplete, not being able to encapsulate the entire essence of what Christ did for us in a simple concept or definition. With the ransom theory, there's clearly a little bit of concern that's warranted when God potentially pays a ransom to Satan. <coughs> Excuse me. This seems to put God in a dependent position, which doesn't seem right. With the moral influence theory, it seems that God's love is highlighted, but his holiness and justice are somewhat absent. The Christus Victor approach seems to emphasize us a little more than God. There seems to be an emphasis not on our guilt, but more on our victimhood, um, at least the way it's often discussed today. Anselm's satisfaction theory goes a different direction and attempts to satisfy God's justice with his, with his theory, but the penal substitution theory adds that legal framework that we are familiar with, where Christ's punishment and death functions in the place of our punishment and death due to God's love for us. Now, the bottom line is that Jesus saves. Exactly how is open for some discussion. Many of these positions we have just viewed seem to attempt to mesh together God's perfect love and his perfect justice. God loves us, but we can't be brought into right relationship with him unless his perfect justice is met. Now, Wayne Grudem points out an interesting point when he says, God did not have to save any of us. Um, he would still be perfectly loving and perfectly just if he didn't offer salvation through Christ, which is kind of a mind-blowing concept in my mind. Consider the angels spoken of in 2 Peter 2.4. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. That could legitimately and fairly be our fate, except for the perfect love of the Father that sent his Son to the cross. And Christ's death then becomes, a necessary, becomes necessary to satisfy God's perfect justice. There was no other way to accomplish this once God the Father in love decided to offer salvation through Christ, which he didn't have to do. Now, the theories reviewed are not exhaustive. There are less notable theories that I didn't discuss, like the governmental theory or the scapegoat theory, amongst others. But regardless of how Christ atones for our sins, our salvation is instantaneous. Yet also something we're called to work out with fear and trembling, as we read in Philippians 2.12. Did I miss one? No. Doubtless you've heard the explanation that salvation is a process and that we are justified the moment we repent and put faith in Christ's atoning work and are filled with the Spirit. Then we are 
then we are sanctified day by day as we are being delivered from the power of sin, growing, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and being led to be more like Jesus, and finally glorified in the future after death. So we are saved the moment we repent and put faith in Christ's atoning work, justified as we just discussed, sanctified as we go, and glorified and made complete upon our death. That middle part, sanctification, can be viewed a couple different ways, um, commonly with the terms positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Positionally, we are sanctified, made holy, and set apart immediately when we are set free by the blood of Christ. This is like an act of God, somewhat or synonymous with maybe justification. Millard Erickson puts it this way, sanctification is the Holy Spirit supplying to the life of the believer the work done by Jesus. Now, progressive sanctification is what we might refer to as Christian growth, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we are positionally sanctified due to the blood of Christ and the Spirit's work. Progressive sanctification occurs as we grow in our faith and put to death whatever belongs to our earthly natures, for instance, as we read in Colossians or in Galatians where we read, um, if we are led by the Spirit, we will put to death those earthly desires and exhibit instead the fruit of the Spirit. Christians are all at a different point on that spectrum or walk regarding our progressive sanctification. Switching topics just a bit um, now, regarding what Orthodox Christians must believe, we talk of essentials of the faith, non-negotiables that fall within the pale of orthodoxy, and other heresies that fall outside the pale of orthodoxy, pale of orthodoxy that must be opposed. Earlier we talked about understanding Christ to be fully human and fully divine, being two essential pieces for the believer to hold, so center circle issues. When we look through the ancient creeds like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, we find other essential factors or center circle beliefs like... There's one triune God, three persons, one essence, who created all things. Christ became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. Christ ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now this is not an exhaustive list, but one point to draw is that the list is short. What, what if I told you the list is even shorter for some and longer for others? Um, what about the thief on the cross? Theologians would argue that he had a true deathbed conversion. Are we to suspect that he understood the Trinity or the finer details of the Incarnation? I would argue that he was justified, as Christ said in Luke 23, 43, Truly I tell you today, you will be, you will be with me in paradise. Um, his Christian growth was cut a bit short due to his death sentence. Um, this same argument could be made of any deathbed conversion. Repentance and faith are all that is needed. That progressive sanctification and growth are something that occurs as we, we go about living out our faith. It's different for all. The longer you live, the more you are responsible for, I would argue. Also consider the differences noted with teachers or elders versus everyone else. James 3.1 reads, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And consider the differences between expectations of Old Testament believers and New Testament believers prior to, the Christ, prior to Christ's death and resu resurrection in us today. Or for, for those of differing abilities, most notably seen in babies or the disabled or children before an actual accountable faith is cognitively available, or for those that have never heard the gospel. Let's take these situation by situation. 
first, how are the folks in the Old Testament saved? Anybody want to answer that? Through Jesus. Yeah. But Jesus wasn't born, so how can that be? Christ's death paid the penalty for past sins of Old Testament saints and future sins of New Testament saints and us today. In Romans 3.25, Paul writes of how God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's what Wendell said. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God did not say, your sins don't matter, I'll just ignore them. Paul wrote that God passed over those previous sins in an act of divine patience or forbearance. He fully poured out his justice against sin, past, present, and future, when sinless Jesus was sacrificed for sin on the cross, as Dave touched on a couple weeks ago when he was covering Romans 3. Again, it's not that God failed to punish those old sins, it's that he stored up his punishment and poured it out on Jesus to fully satisfy the payment for those former sins as well. So that answers the question as to how God's love and justice are satisfied with Old Testament sin. But what was, the, what was expected of those Old Testament believers? Salvation requires faith, as we just read in Romans. And the object of one's faith for salvation is God. For instance, Genesis 15.6 tells us, and Romans 4.3 repeats, that Abraham believed God, and that was enough for God to credit to him, it to him as righteousness. Abraham placed his faith in God based on what revelation was given at that time. In Abraham's day, no scripture was written, but mankind was responsible for what God had revealed. Throughout the Old Testament, believers came to salvation because they believed God's new revelation and that he would someday take care of their sin problem, grace through faith. Today, we look back, believing that he has already taken care of our sins on the cross instead of looking forward. What has changed through the ages is the content of a believer's faith. God's requirement of what must be believed is based on the amount of revelation he has given mankind up to that time. As time passes, the picture becomes more complete or fuller. This is called progressive revelation. Consider what Adam knew, even less than Abraham. But Adam believed the promise God gave in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would conquer Satan. At that point, that is all Adam knew, but he believed it. Still, a grace through faith in God. The late theology professor Charles Ryrie summed up the matter this way, the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. The object of that faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in various ages. In other words, no matter when a person has lived, their salvation is ultimately dependent on the work of Christ and faith placed in God. But the amount of knowledge a person had concerning the specifics of God's plan has increased through the ages via God's progressive revelation. Regarding the Old Testament saints, Norman Geisler offers the following. In short, it appears that at most the normative Old Testament salvific requirements in terms of explicit belief were one, faith in God's unity, two, acknowledgement of human sinfulness, three, acceptance of God's necessary grace, and possibly a fourth, understanding that there would be a coming Messiah. So faith with, with the object of that faith being God. Is there evidence in scripture to support Geisler's claim? Consider the passage which contains the first three requirements in chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This event took place before the death and the resurrection of Christ, so it clearly involves a person who has no knowledge of the New Testament gospel message as it's articulated today. In the tax collector's simple statement, God be merciful to me, the sinner, we find one, a faith in God, two, an acknowledgement of sin, and three, an acceptance of mercy. Then Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, the man went home justified. This is the exact term used by Paul to describe the position of, of a New Testament saint who has, who has believed the gospel message and put his trust in Christ. In Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth on Geisler's list is missing in Luke's account, the understanding of a coming Messiah. However, other New Testament passages indicate that this might have been a common teaching. For example, in John's account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, in chapter 4, the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now, what about Jesus' disciples? Late in his ministry, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life, as we read in Matthew 16. What was the reaction of his disciples to this message? Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter and the other disciples did not know the full truth, yet they were saved because they believed that God would take care of their sin problem, still grace through faith. They didn't exactly know how he would accomplish that, much like Adam or Abraham or Moses or David, but they believed what God had revealed up to that point. Today we have, a more, we have more revelation than the people living before the resurrection of Christ. We know the fuller picture. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe, as we read in Hebrews 1. Our salvation is still based on the death of Christ. Our faith is still the requirement for our salvation, and the object of our faith is still God. Today, for us, the content of our faith is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose on the third day. That's what we know. Now, what about babies, children, and some of the disabled folks who don't have the cognitive ability to choose? This is a common question asked by those searching and also by serious believers. It can seem like a bit of a quandary. The Bible doesn't explicitly answer the question of whether children who die before they are born again go to heaven. However, enough indirect information can be pieced together from the scriptures to provide a satisfactory answer, which relates to infants, children, as well as those with mental handicaps, I think. The Bible speaks matter-of-factly about children who, to quote from Isaiah 7:16, do not know enough to reject the wrong 
and choose the right. One reason people are guilty before God, Romans 1 says, is that they refuse to acknowledge what is clearly seen and understood concerning God, or general revelation. People who, upon seeing and evaluating the evidence of nature, choose to reject God, then they are without excuse. This raises some questions. If a child is too young to know right from wrong and possesses no capacity for reasoning about God, then is that child exempted from judgment? Will God hold babies responsible for not responding to the gospel when they are incapable of understanding the message? I would argue that granting saving grace to babies, young children, and the disabled is consistent with God's justice, love, and mercy. John 9 does not specifically speak to babies, children, or the disabled, but I think there's a principle here that can be drawn related to them. In John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. After the physical healing, the man goes through a process of receiving a spiritual sight. I'm sure this passage is pretty familiar to you. At first, the man is ignorant. He knows Jesus' name, but not where to find him. That's in verses 11 and 12. Later, he arrives at the truth that Jesus is a prophet, in verse 17, and that he is from God, verses 30, or verse 33. Then, in speaking to Jesus, the man admits his ignorance and his need for a Savior. Jesus asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man replies, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. That's in verses 35-36. Finally, having seen the light spiritually, he says, Lord, I believe, and worships Jesus. Verse 38. Following the expression of faith from the man born blind in John 9, Jesus encounters some spiritually blind Pharisees. Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, spiritually blind here, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. That's verses 39 and 41, through 41. In other words, Jesus says, if you were truly ignorant or spiritually blind, you would have no guilt. It's because you are not ignorant, you are willfully unbelieving, that you stand guilty before God. One of the principles Jesus lays down in John 9 is that God does not condemn people for the things they are unable to do. If people had no ability to do the, the will of God, then they could incur no blame. If they have all proper ability, God holds them to be guilty. This principle should push us, who have no excuse, to strive towards righteousness. But also, according to this principle, babies, young children, and the disabled who are unable to accept or reject Christ are not held accountable for unbelief, I would believe. Other biblical ant 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 antidotes. Took on Wendell. Um, I hear you. Like David testifying that he would be reunited with his dead child after death in 2 Samuel 12 23, support the reasonable belief that infants go to heaven when they die. The same would seem to hold true for children with, and those with mental disabilities who cannot comprehend, comprehend right from, and wrong. Um, one other trouble area um, would be related to those who have never heard. I'm talking about those deeply embedded image bearers in the jungles of South America or heart of Africa or the isolated tribe pictured here um, on North Sentinel Island near India. Anybody? Actually, you guys familiar with that place? Some guy died trying to share the gospel with them recently. Um, 
Does the principle just discussed suffice? Some would argue that they can't be held responsible for something they are incapable of knowing. But let's remember that all people are accountable to God for what they do know and what they are capable of knowing. The Bible tells us that God is, has clearly revealed himself in nature in Romans 1.20, as we already discussed, and in the hearts of, of, of all people in Ecclesiastes. The problem is that humanity is sinful, as we discussed earlier in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of, of the glory of God. We all reject this knowledge of God and rebel against him, Romans 1. It is not so much that people have not heard about God, rather the problem is that they have rejected what they have heard and what is readily seen in nature. In Deuteronomy 4.29, Moses tells the Israelites, but if from there you seek God, seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your hearts and with all your soul. This verse shares an important principle. When you truly seek after God, you will find him. If a person truly desires to know God, God will, will and has made himself known. We see this repeated in James. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And in Matthew, Jeremiah, Acts, where we see variations of the phrase, seek and you will find. The problem is there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, as we read in Romans, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, throughout Scripture. People reject the knowledge of God that is present in nature and in their own hearts, and instead decide to worship a God of their own creation. It is foolish to debate the fairness of God sending someone to hell who's never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ, because it's not true. People are responsible to God for what God has already revealed to them. The Bible says that people reject this knowledge and therefore God is just in condemning them to hell. The answer to this question relates to God's nature, his revelation, and our response. Biblically speaking, God is holy, just, unchanging, and all-loving. This means that God will always do what is right. So is it true then that those who have never heard really have no idea of God's existence or of their moral responsibilities? Biblically speaking, it's not true. Those who have heard, who those who have never heard, have heard something, and they do have access to key information about God. They know that God exists, that there is a moral standard, and that they have broken the standard. One other important question to ask related to this matter is what motivates the question. Often the question is asked as a diversion. Um, it immediately takes away the focus on the person asking the question and shifts the problem back to the Christian. This is not to say it's not a legitimate question, because it is. But the motivation is not always a sincere desire to get an answer. Of course, ignoring the question is not helpful either, as that gives the impression that the Christian doesn't care or doesn't have a good answer. And sometimes it's a legitimate question driven by real concern over the nature of God. If he's really all-loving, then the fact that he appears to condemn those who have never heard the gospel comes across as harsh, unmerciful, and unjust. And yet another point to, related to the motivation for the question has to do with truth. Does the question, however it is answered, question, I mean, change whether or not Christianity is true? It doesn't. If God exists and has revealed himself to us, and if Christ is the only way to God, then the question may puzzle us, but it's, it won't change the truth of the Christian message. With this knowledge, it makes sense that we should take very seriously the problem of the lost and should be doing our very best to make sure they do hear. 
we are called to spread the gospel throughout the nations in Acts 1.8 and in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and again multiple places throughout scripture. We know people reject the knowledge of God revealed in nature and that should motivate us to proclaim the good news of salvation through Christ. The Bible's clear that those who perish without Christ will face an eternity in hell. Jesus' mandate to evangelize the world is still in force. People need to put their faith in Christ. For these reasons, we should take seriously our call to share the gospel with the world as we go about our lives. In closing, consider the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 9.16. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Thanks. Well, thanks, Tim. I think for um, many, this would be serve as a review for, hopefully for many, it will also be an occasion to learn some things that perhaps um, you had not uh, known before. And for all of us, or at least for some, maybe it will even prove to be a challenge. You know, we, um, there's a lot of things about salvation. There's a lot of nuances involved in all this. The um, things like the difference between expiation and propitiation, and there's you know, how, how does the, uh, the role of the fact that Jesus is divine and the fact that he is human plays into all of this. You've got the, uh, all these nuances of the various theories and trying to harmonize God's love and justice and these sorts of things. And there's a lot here that we may not really fully understand, but everyone should be able to understand this. We, um, you know, our sins condemn us. Um, we need rescued we need forgiven, we need a savior, and if you are not one of his followers, and we may have some here this morning who, who are not, we may have some who think that they are, but in reality they're not, I would just plead with you to think very seriously about what Tim has shared and about the offer that God makes through his son, has revealed in the scriptures to us. If you are a member of the youth group and have grown up in a Christian home and a church environment, do not assume that this is your salvation. Uh, you need to own this yourself. Your sins condemn you. You need to be forgiven individually. Uh, you need a Savior, every one of us. And um, all of us eventually face the ultimate choice, that of saying no thanks and continuing on being Lord of one's own life and letting sin remain as an open account on the books. Um, a condition where the wrath of God remains on us, as Tim talked about and as Jesus talked about, or, or that of choosing to accept the forgiveness that has been offered to God, has been offered by God free to us, but of course at a great price to himself. So if you have not done this or you have questions about this, um, we are here to help you with that, to answer your questions, to help lead you through that. And, and if you have done this, and uh, most in here this morning have, well, the application is pretty obvious. Let us live lives that are worthy of the blessing that has been lavished upon us. Um, to please him by doing those things that honor and glorify him and expressing true belief, faith, gratitude in, in that. And by not doing those things that dishonor and grieve him, which would be inconsistent with our faith in the salvation that he provides us. So as Tim said, I mean, the longer you live, the more you are responsible for the longer you've been in the faith, the more your life should reflect an appreciation and belief in the salvation that's been offered. So upon those words, I will dismiss you. Um, go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.